As we turn to our topic this morning, I'd like to begin with the story of Louis Zamperini. You're familiar with this from a movie maybe that you've seen, but he was born in 1917 to Italian immigrants in Long Beach, California. In high school, he discovered track and field and also discovered that he was very fast. He recorded the fastest mile ever by a high school student at four minutes, 21 seconds. Where's Ty Clanton? Ty, what'd you do it in? The mile in high school. 437, not even close, okay? Not even close, but that's okay. That was like 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Things have gotten better, but not tied, but that's all right. At the age of 19, he um, entered the Olympic Games, 1936, the Berlin Olympics. He finished eighth in the 5,000 meter. He returned home to run track at the University of Spoiled Children here in Los Angeles. Uh, I know it's, it's rough, but that's just the way it is when you're a Bruin at heart. By the way, I did go to uh, College of the Canyons for four years. So I, I turned that into my university experience, but I had the privilege of going to UCLA, that nice, woke, uh, liberal school. So all that being said, when he finished college, I'll settle in, I'll settle in. When he finished college, he enlisted in the army um, and, and World War II was afoot. While on a search and rescue mission, his plane called the Green Hornet, which had a history of mechanical problems, went down some 800 miles off the coast of Hawaii. Only two other men, Louis and two other men, survived that crash into the ocean and they spent 47 days on an inflatable raft living off of rainwater, birds, and small fish that they could catch and then eat raw. Expected to be the first runner to break the four-minute mile, Louis now weighs less than 100 pounds and was not even strong enough to walk. These men drifted over 2,000 miles. One of them died on the way and they put him into the ocean. The other two of them came ashore finally, Louis and another man, washing up of all places on the western shore of Japan. These American soldiers were captured transferred to a Japanese POW camp where Louis, uh, they were separated. Louis was put under the control of a merciless guard nicknamed the, nicknamed the Bird. This man was ruthless, took great joy in torturing his prisoners. He would beat men every day. He fractured windpipes, ruptured eardrums, shattered teeth, often leaving men unconscious. He was an evil man. Louis, due to his positive attitude, this lion-hearted spirit, and his fame as an Olympian, he was singled out and subjected to horrible torture at the hands of the bird who would abuse him on a daily basis and made his life even more miserable. If you'd like to know more about the story, I would not see the movie, although the movie was fantastic. Read the book Unbroken by Laura Hildebrandt. It's a phenomenal, fascinating story. But then... The war ends, Louis is released, comes home, he had been declared killed in action, they didn't know what happened, and so when he returns, he comes back to a hero's welcome, he's paraded across the country for all of America to see, an Olympic athlete turned soldier, a prisoner of war turned hero, and yet as a free man, he found himself imprisoned by his anger and hatred toward those who had abused him. His days were saturated with alcohol. His nights were riddled with nightmares of the nameless faces of those who tortured him without mercy. Unable to let it go, unable to move on, he dove deeper and deeper into despair, hatred, and misery. He refused to forgive. He would not let go of the offenses and pain of his past. The wrongs suffered were so severe, the hurt was so deep. Anybody been hurt before? Anybody in here suffered wrongs that were severe, where the hurt was so deep that you closed your heart like a fist and said, I will not release, I will not forgive? Hurt by another, you bottle it up and choose to hold on to that? rationalizing, justifying all the reasons why because they hurt you, you don't need to forgive them. Now I get it, the story of Louis Zamperini is an extreme example. His pain is more than most. And yet, some in this room have suffered tremendously and it doesn't take much to reopen those old wounds, does it? 
You've been lied to, betrayed, even abandoned. You tell yourself that you've got broad shoulders, thick skin, water off the duck's back. But deep down inside, pain turns into anger. Anger turns into bitterness. Bitterness turns into hatred. And you choose not to forgive. No one's immune from being hurt. Every one of us has experienced pain at the hands of an enemy or even a friend or even somebody in our family. Maybe you're like the man who said, I wish that all my enemies had three cars parked in front of their house, an ambulance, a fire truck, and a police car. Or like JFK who said, forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. Or Ulysses S. Grant who said, the art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is, get at him as soon as you can, and strike him as hard as you can. Some would embrace that philosophy. Oh, it might not be that you wage a direct war against them, but how many have given someone the silent treatment, withheld love from them, stopped sending them text messages, stopped inviting them places, or started talking about them behind their backs? These cold wars go on every single day. Maybe a close friend or an old boyfriend or girlfriend has hurt you so badly that even today the wound remains open. And when just, just right now, thinking of that person, your blood pressure begins to rise. Your teeth grind together. The hair on the back of your neck goes up because there is no love lost. The simple reality is that we struggle to forgive when our pride is wounded or something precious is taken from us or something evil is done to us, we act in a way to preserve and protect ourselves. Often that means cutting the person off, ignoring them, even seeking revenge or just plain hatred in our hearts. Let's just put it right out there at the start. Forgiveness is hard. It's hard in a dorm room. It's hard in a marriage. Forgiveness is hard. One man said forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. And yet, this morning, as those who have been forgiven, we have been called to forgive others. And so today we're going to handle and tackle this topic of forgiveness. Our thesis for this morning, and something I want to prove to you from the text, remember this phrase, forgiveness is always right. Forgiveness is always right. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 31 through 32. I'd like to read those together. It will serve as our text for the morning. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. No doubt you will recognize these verses. Paul writing, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That is a text. Forgiveness is always right. Let's dive in. Point number one in your outlines. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. Let's just begin by admitting and acknowledging that relational conflict is a part of life. We all experience it. Some are going through it right now. The unresolved tension that lingers after some altercation, disagreement, or dispute. It exists in our homes, in our workplaces, at school, even here in this church. And we'd be happy if we could avoid it altogether, but it seems that wherever we go, conflict follows us. And the reason for this is because relational conflict is not caused by something or someone out there. It comes from inside of us. I'm sorry to break it to you if you didn't already know this, but the root cause of the problems in your life typically is you. I know you like to blame your parents or your spouse or your siblings or your roommate or your co-employers, or even gluten itself, the size of your carbon footprint, but the issues in your life are a direct result of the sin that is in your heart. 
In Ephesians 4.31, Paul lists six, six sinful behaviors that create conflict in our lives. These originate in the heart of sinful men and women and affect our relationships with others. Let's walk through them quickly to give us a better understanding. That first word you see it there is the word bitterness. Bitterness. It's an unpleasant, even nasty disposition. It's the cold-hearted closing of your heart to another. It has a physical aspect to it. Um, as we know what it is like to eat something that has a bitter feeling in our stomach. Bitterness remembers wrongs. It broods on them, has a spirit of irritability that turns into a sour and even venomous temperament. We talked about this weekend at the marriage retreat. Husbands are to love your wives and do not be embittered towards them. Same word. Hebrews 12, 15 compares bitterness to a weed or to a root. The instruction there says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Bitterness, like a weed in a root, bores deep down into our hearts. And once it gets there and finds a home, it's hard to get out. It defiles, that verse says. It causes trouble. It even wreaks havoc in our relationships. There are some bitter people in this room. You're jaded, cynical, sarcastic, distrustful, suspicious even of the motives of other people because of some wrong done in the past. Like a weed, you need to get to that heart issue and tear it out all the way from the root. That's bitterness. Next, we'll take those next two words. Look at 31 there. Wrath and anger, let's take them together because they're related obviously to each other. Wrath is rage or fury expressed in the heart of the moment. This is that, that quick explosive response. It's a passion expressed in uncontrolled, hot-headed, impulsive manner when you lose your temper. In Proverbs 14, 17, it says a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Proverbs 29, 22, a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Now, in contrast to that word, the word anger is an internal smoldering like the coals on a fire. Not a minor frustration or irritation, but a deep and a settled anger. It doesn't erupt like a volcano, but it simmers and festers and rehashes wrongs and plots revenge and refuses to forgive. While Ephesians 4.26, if you look up there, says, be angry and yet do not sin, same word. This here in 31 is sinful anger. You know the verse in James 1.19, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Listen to this. For the righteousness, excuse me, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Let me just ask you a question. Are you a landmine? Or are you a pressure cooker? The landmine, let me see if this is you. I'm going to actually ask for a show of hands. Your fuse is small. Your temper is large. And like a landmine, you have no problem detonating on anybody who even accidentally steps on you. You're like anger in the movie in, uh, Inside Out, right? You, if you've seen this, the sequel's coming out. But if anything or anyone provokes you, bah, you just explode. Blow up on your kids, on your spouse, on those around you at work. Just curious. We're going to ask the other side too. Anybody here have a quick temper and struggle with anger? It's okay. It's all right. You can put your hands up. Good. Thank you. Now we got the pressure cooker, people. It's a scary group. You keep everything inside. You bottle it up. You hold grudges. You keep lists. You let skeletons lurk in the closet. You don't like to deal with conflict, so you just sweep it under the rug where it can fester and grow, like mold under there. Most of the time, you don't tell the other person that you're angry with them. Anybody here just a pressure cooker? Just go ahead, throw it up. Yeah, we got some of those too. Now, the pressure cooker and the landmine are just are two extremes and, and, and good definitions of these two types of anger, and there's all sorts of sin in between that. And I come back to the name of this point, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. 
When someone does something to offend, we get angry and either explode on them in an ungodly demonstration of anger or we bottle it up, leaving it in the dark where it can fester and grow. Two more words here. We'll group them together also. Look back at 31. Those next two words, clamor and slander. Do you see them there? Both have the idea of verbal expression. Clamor is a verbal outcry. It's a loud scream or a shout. It rises like the tide. Your irritation overflows and in harsh words, raised voices, even yelling to make sure that we are heard. It's a verbal outpouring of an angry heart, listen to this, that has lost control. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And in that moment, the heart is airing its grievances. Then there's that other word, slander. In this context, it's used for those who speak evil against another. It's to cut them down with your words. It's to assassinate their character. Where you sit as judge, jury, handing out a uh, a verdict of guilty to the one who's offended you. Fueled by an angry and bitter heart, it seeks to harm or injure the reputation of another. You slanderer. Proverbs 18.8 paints a picture. It says, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. The picture there, we enjoy slander and gossip like a nice piece of chocolate, enjoying the taste and savoring the feel as we eat it. But Proverbs 10.18 says, he who spreads slander is a fool. In Psalm 101.5, God says, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. And yet we struggle with our tongues. James 3.8 says, no, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, like we did as we sang this morning. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. We can sit in this room on Sunday morning. We can even raise our hands and sing to the Lord in prayer. And then we can get into our cars and before we're even out of the canyon, we're tearing others down. Did you hear what she said to me? Can you believe that he walked right by and didn't even acknowledge me? (laughs) We are a quick draw. We are a crack shot with our tongues. We know exactly how to use them and we know exactly what we're doing. The old saying is true. The tongue is the only tool that gets sharper with time. This brings us to that final word there in 31. You see the word malice? Malice. This is a general term for for wicked or evil actions. It's a broad, all-encompassing word that serves as a catch-all. We'll just call it like the junk drawer of evil. You got that junk drawer at home, you pull that thing out, you've got things in there that you will never need. You don't know how they got there. They was probably left there from the people that lived in that house before you, but you can't throw any of it away because you never know. This is that. You pull that thing out, it's like all sorts of evil is just in here in this word malice. In case Paul missed anything, He uses this word to just say, let me just tell you, this is all these evil thoughts and all these evil actions against others. So let me put all this together, drive it home. Relational conflict is a part of your life. And the reason it follows you around is because your heart is filled with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice. Now I want you to think about the relational conflict in your life. Get in your mind, please do this. Please in your own mind, palaces, go there. Think about how you responded to that last injury or hurt or pain. I would wager that you responded in an angry way, that you said unkind words, that you had a bitter spirit. That when it happened to you, you immediately got defensive. That you threw up a protective wall and that you blamed others for the issue. We're so quick to see the faults in others and so slow to see our own shortcomings. With this selfless and limited perspective, our response is so predictable. It's where we naturally gravitate. And let me say it one more time. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. And so God gives us instruction in this verse. It's a command. It's an imperative. Look down there at 31, right there, nestled in the middle. He gives this command. Put it away. Put it away. That is, get rid of it and be done with it. Every ounce of bitterness is to be put away. All feelings of anger are to be eliminated. All sinful speech is to be quelled. Once and for all, be done with these things. They were yours before Christ. They are no longer yours anymore. 
And do you see that last modifier, that little modifier in 31? He uses it twice. It's the word all. That word all, hold on to no past pain, no past hurt, no desire to hurt others, no harboring of resentment, no dwelling on or going back to or reopening the wounds of the past, no feasting on the injury in your mind. Put it all away. In totality, in completeness, be done with it. These are the things, by the way, that split churches. These are the things that ruin friendships. These are the things that end marriages. And these are the things that tear families apart. The struggle is real. And Paul says, get it away from you. Now, point number two in your outline. The resolution is radical. The resolution is radical. The struggle is real. The resolution is radical. Verse 32. Paul turns from what we are to put off to what we are to put on. And these six vices, he moves from them to three characteristics of those in Christ. And as we look at the hurt that has been caused, the pain that has been endured, we are called to act in a way that is fitting with our new nature, to be kind, to be tender-hearted, and to forgive one another. I mean, come on, those are powerful words, and yet they are difficult words. They go against the norm, like a fish swimming upstream, these take conscious and active effort. Because in 31, the pendulum is swung all the way over here to wrath and anger and slammer and clander and bitterness and malice. And Paul is saying in one action, we are swinging the pendulum all the way in Christ over to this other side where there's kindness and tenderhearted and forgiveness coming. One is a response to the flesh. The other is a response to the spirit. One is a godly response. It's this side. The other is a natural fleshly response. Let's look then at these three words in turn. Look back at 32. You see that first word there? Be kind. Be kind. It's, an act in a, it's to act in a mild or pleasant or friendly and good way. To have a gracious and soft disposition. One commentator defined it as love in practical action. Mark Twain said kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. I like that. Young women, you are called to be kind in Titus chapter two, verse five. Every woman is called to model that, that lady in Proverbs 31, where it says in verse 26, the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. We are all called to be kind to those in the church here in Ephesians 4.32. And in 2 Timothy 2.24, we are to be kind to all. Micah 6.8 says to love kindness. Luke 6.36 says that it is God who is kind to ungrateful men. Romans 2.4 says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And Titus 3, 4 says, it is the kindness of God that saves us. In light of this, Proverbs 3, 3 says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and men. Now this biblical term for kindness has made its way into our vernacular, into our culture. In fact, Practicing kindness is very popular and in vogue right now in our world. In an effort to help people in their practicing of kindness, one website gave the following suggestions. It's amazing what you can find on Google, right? Um, use your manners, smile at a stranger, leave a tip. We're just gonna ask you a couple extra questions. Let's see, that thing around. Let someone go ahead of you in line, buy donuts for someone, don't be stingy with hugs. Those are great suggestions, aren't they? But the idea, biblically, of kindness goes much deeper. How do you respond when somebody's mean to you? How do you respond when someone intentionally leaves you out? 
How do you react when someone hurts your feelings? When someone says a harsh word about you behind your back? What happens when your ideas aren't listened to or your opinions don't matter? The response is predictable. Bitterness, anger, slander, the desire for justice and revenge. But here we are called to be kind, a continual command. Continue to put on kindness, to become kindness, to wear kindness as a garment to those who are ungrateful to you, to those who have wronged and offended you. And so in our world's eye, they say practice random acts of kindness. Is that true for the Christian? No, it's not. We practice thoughtful, consistent, proactive, radical acts of kindness. Those that are the exact opposite of what your flesh tells you to do. Swallow your pride. Forget about your ego. Stop thinking of yourself as more important than you ought and be kind. Yes, it's true that guys are brutal to each other. But ladies, you can be downright ruthless. Women are quick to ostracize someone who doesn't fit. Women are famous for cliques. Women are quick to backstab, quick to gossip, quick to harbor resentment and grudges against each other. Ladies, Galatians 5.22 says that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. That is to say, kindness is a direct manifestation of the Spirit's work in your life. A lack of kindness then is a lack of the Spirit having sway in your life. So when someone is evil toward you, when someone is even an enemy, when someone responds to you in an ungrateful way, even hurts you or purposely offends you, you respond to them in kindness. The next word there, look at 32 that Paul gives us is that word tender-hearted. I love this word. It means compassion or sympathy, to have mercy or empathy, usually in response to the infirmity or grief or misery of others. In the Greek language, it, it, it is referring to a healthy function of the bowels. Like it, it actually it gives you, it's a feeling in your stomach, the pit of your stomach when you feel the pain that someone else is suffering. The emotional turmoil and grieving and hurt in another, and you have concern. It's interesting that feeling of bitterness in your stomach, that sour feeling, is to be replaced by a feeling of compassion, of empathy. Let me see if I can give you this feeling right now. I, I had a friend, I showed up to work one day, and, and she was telling a story. She, it, was a, it was in San Diego, and she said, oh, I feel terrible. And she was telling a story to a bunch of people. Well, what happened? Well, I got up this morning, it was still dark out. I live in an apartment down down um, south in San Diego and I got into my car and uh, I started to pull away and I felt myself go like over a little bump and so I stopped and I got out and I had run over my neighbor's cat. You see, you just did it. And the cat was still alive. And so she said, I didn't know what to do. So I got out of my car and I, I picked it up by the rear legs and I beat it against a telephone pole <laughs> until it was dead. This is a true story, not embellishing. And then she said, I went to go put the cat down kind of in front of their like, little apartment and I looked up and they were standing in the doorway watching me. <laughs> She goes, I I think I have to move. I don't know what to do. (laughs) I know it's a little bit of a stretch. But for just a minute there, you you feel it in your stomach, that feeling of compassion even for that cat, right? You felt that? That's the heart of compassion. It, it, It has a grieving and an empathy for someone else. Let me give you a better one. In Luke 15, the father of the prodigal has this type of care for his wayward son. It says in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Being tender-hearted is not a trait that men, speak to the men here, naturally gravitate toward. From an early age, men are taught to be strong and bold and confident. You need to be a man's man. Get a deck full of tools and a big truck. 
Don't expose your soft side. Don't show too much emotion. Don't really care. You're supposed to be a rock. But men, that gruff exterior, lack of smiles, the tough guy persona, I got it. It's got its place. But we are called to be kind, and here's the word, men, tender-hearted. Are the men of PBC tender-hearted men marked by a compassionate care of others? I'm not saying that you need to get all sappy and watch Hallmark movies, but you do, some of you. I am saying you need to be men who care for the hurts of others, men who bear the burdens of others, and men who are associated with pain in another as if it's your own and seek to alleviate that pain. Paul says be kind. He says be tenderhearted. Finally, that little trait there in 32 is the word forgiving. Now, there are two main words in the Greek New Testament that are translated to forgive. One means as you'd expect to pardon or to send away and remove the guilt associated with the wrong done. In in Luke 5.21, they say who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can offer pardon for sins? That's one word. The word here in Ephesians 4.32 is a different word. It comes from the same root as the word grace. Anybody named Charis in the room? That's the, the Greek word where this comes from. It's the word um, of the root. It has grace. It, it means to freely give favor or deal graciously with another. It's to act in grace towards one another. In this context, it is to look at a wrong suffered and instead of holding someone to it, making them feel the pain of the error, you treat them graciously. It is not to consider the wrong done, but rather to respond with a selfless and considerate love. One commentator wrote, Christian forgiveness insists on nothing when wronged. It freely lets the wrong pass and thus for its part ends it all at once. How about C.S. Lewis? He said real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin that is left over after all allowances have been made. And seeing it in all its cruelty is nevertheless wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. At the moment of offense, I must forgive the other. I cannot harbor, I cannot indulge, I cannot hold on to the wrong done. I do not get to act as judge, jury, and executioner. I must forgive. Jesus in Luke 17, verse three, says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Wow. Wow. The principle here is that we forgive and we keep forgiving. In fact, that command to forgive in verse 32 is a continual command. Keep on forgiving. Not a one-time deal. Well, I'll just let it go this once. No, this is the constant state of the heart of the Christian. Can I show this to you? Flip back all the way to Genesis chapter 50 in your Bibles. I think this is the one of the best illustrations and examples of forgiveness that we've been given. Genesis 50, verse 15. This is right after the death of Joseph's father, Jacob, and his brothers are really concerned. Everything's been restored. Everything's been dealt with in the past. This is the end. Dad is dead. Is Joseph gonna do something now that dad's gone? In verse 15, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us, pays us back in full for all the wrong we did to him? Look down at 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph, this man of God, in verse 19 said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Am I the judge? Is it mine to deal out retribution? No, even though you treated me so wrongly, sold me into slavery, to a place where I didn't even know the language, to a place where I was accused unjustly, to a place where I sat in jail for years, you think he had time to stew over that injury? That he had time to bake it, to be bitter, to be angered, to be full of slander and malice? You think when Joseph was rotting away in that prison, forgotten by the outside world, he could have just stewed down to a point of self-destruction in his heart? But he didn't. 
After his release from prison, he's married and has a son. Don't turn there, but in 4151, it says, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget. Wow. That's amazing. Long before the famine in Egypt, Joseph had forgiven his brothers. And so in chapter 50, look down at verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That dude is a boss. How about Stephen? As he's being executed, as the result of a sham trial and mob justice. In Acts 7.59, says they went on stoning him and he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor who suffered and died in Nazi Germany said, this is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy stand by his side and plead for him to God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The abuses, the insults, the injuries don't just come from those unsaved enemies out there. They come from in here, from our brothers and sisters in Christ, from our friends and from those we love most in our families. Notice in, in 32, go back to Ephesians. He says to forgive who? Just your enemies? Just those people out there? No, he says forgive each other. Forgive one another. There is a mutual exchange of forgiveness. Today you offended me and I forgive you. Tomorrow, I will offend you and I'll ask for your forgiveness. It's who we are as Christians. Don't you see that? It's not all about our little world and how offended we are. Stop being a victim. Stop getting into that mentality. Us versus them. Stop cutting others off and making your circle of trust smaller and smaller. No, we're all in this together. And you will be hurt and I will be hurt. And when it happens and it will, God calls, calls us to forgive and to let the offenses go. To actively look at that person and drown the sin in a sea of kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Listen, the struggle is real. And we naturally respond according to verse 31. That's our programmed response. But in Christ, there's a different response. There is a radical response that swings all the way in the power of the spirit. We are able to forgive. And let me say this again. Forgiveness is always right. Forgiveness is always right. Now, as an aside before we leave this point, there's two pathways to forgiveness. I, I put these on your outlines. You, you have on the one side to cover sin. This is practical, just really quick. And you have on the other side to confront. That's your choice. First Peter 4 says that love, like a blanket, covers a multitude of sins. And if somebody sins against you, this is typical in marriage. You're not gonna confront every single sin. You know the heart, you trust the person, you love them, and so you just throw the blanket of love over and cover it. You don't bring it up again, it's done. But if that sin is working too deeply in your heart, boring a hole, repeated sin, intentional sin, sometimes Matthew 18 says you need to go to your brother and sister, even if it's a wife or a husband, whoever it might be, and confront them on that sin. That's your choice. That's your decision. Those are your pathways. There is no third pathway that says harbor bitterness and resentment and anger. Okay. The problem is real. It demands a radical response. Number three, the motivation is amazing. The motivation is amazing. If you're like me, the question is still lingering. It is the question, why? Why should I forgive? Why should I forgive? I've been injured. I've been stepped on. I never want to see that person again. The very thought of them gives me that visceral, bitter response. But 32 ends with an amazing statement. 
It is a bedrock truth. It is the motivation that we need. Look there. See this in your Bibles. We forgive because God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let's unpack this verse by answering some basic questions about the forgiveness of God. Really quick, who, what, when, how, and why did God forgive? Who does God forgive? Look back at 32, what does it say? He forgave you. He forgave you, and who are you? Straight A student, accomplished musician, Great cook, business owner, amazing mom, talented writer, gifted athlete, principal, teacher, pastor, executive. Unfortunately, these things don't carry any weight in God's eyes. Your title, your bank account, your social media following, your accomplishments, they account for nothing. You are a ruined sinner, a fallen son or daughter of Adam. Scripture does not describe you as the best of the best, but as contemptible and weak and unworthy and wretched, as an enemy, as the greatest of sinners, as the least of these, as the blind, as the lost, who is hopeless and helpless and damned, a child of wrath awaiting judgment. Who does God forgive? He forgives you, an unworthy sinner. What did God forgive? He forgave every thought, word, and deed that has fallen short of his perfect standard, every infraction of his holiness, every attack on his sovereignty, every question of his goodness, every doubt of his love, every worship of another God, the big sins, the little sins, the public sins, the private sins, your favorite sins, the most shameful sins, the deliberate sins, the sins of omission, the sins of commission, the one-time offenses, the repeated offenders, sins committed before you were a Christian, done in ignorance before you knew Christ in the darkness, sins done since then in the light after your conversion as a child of righteousness, all sin, past and present and future have been forgiven by God. How does God forgive? And really, this is the divine dilemma. God must be just. We sang holy, 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 and yet he desires to save his people. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, how did God make mercy and justice kiss? Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, how can God be both just and the justifier? And so out comes the sacrificial system. Animals dying in the place of man, a picture of the consequence of sin. But Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats can never take away the sin of a man. More was required. And so at the right time, God sent forth his own son, given to the world he created. He came in humility as the suffering servant. Like the animals of the Old Testament, he too would take the place of a man. But unlike the animals of the Old Testament, he was a worthy substitute. As a man, he could bear the sins of men. Hanging on a cross, the giver of life gave up his life. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Listen carefully. Forgiveness isn't free. There has never been a higher price paid for anything. Your forgiveness was purchased with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1. And 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Where did mercy and justice kiss? At the cross of Jesus Christ. And how can God be both just and the justifier? By pouring out his wrath on his son, he extends mercy and forgiveness to the undeserving. When did God forgive? The forgiveness of God comes to a sinner at the moment of salvation. In the divine courtroom, a hammer falls and a declaration is made. Innocent, justified, declared righteous. The sinner has been made clean. Innocent is the verdict. The debt has been paid. Sin is removed. It is over. And all the promises of Scripture are yours in Christ. Listen to what these promises are. In Micah 7:18, God will tread our transgression under his foot. Isaiah 38, 17, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 43:25, I will remember your sins no more. Micah 7, 19, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And finally, Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. 
at the moment that you came in faith, bowed your knee, submitted your life to Christ, he forgave you completely, continually, freely, and eternally. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Who, what, when, how, and last, why? Why does God forgive? Let's just let scripture speak for itself on this. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, John 3. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins, 1 John 4. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. God forgives because he loves. He felt kindness, he felt pity, he felt compassion toward us and took us while we were yet sinners, paid our ransom, forgave us and made us alive in Christ. Mm. So let's go back to the original question. Why should I forgive? Why should I forgive? Look at your Bibles. Verse 32. Because God in Christ also has forgiven you. How should you forgive? That same way, it's right there in verse 32. The way that God in Christ also has forgiven you. Freely, completely, totally, and forever. Are you holding on to an offense right now? Some wrong done? Are you still grinding over some issue from the past? I got it. There are things that need to be worked out and time for the heart and restitution and reconciliation. There are conversations and deep things that need to be enacted. There are all of those pieces part of this process. But my friend, as one who has been forgiven, it is time to forgive. The issue is not between you and them at that point. The issue is between you and God. John Bunyan wrote this poem, he said, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. This truth gives us wings to fly, to get out of the muck and mire of our personal offenses, to set our, our, our eyes on Christ and to offer the same forgiveness that he gave to us. God has forgiven you of an insurmountable debt. How can you not forgive another whose offense to you is so much less than how you've offended your Lord? Those who are forgiven much, love much. The struggle is real. The resolution is radical. The motivation is amazing. My friends, Forgiveness is always right. If I can just pause for a minute, there are certainly some in this room who have never been forgiven by God, who even now you're under the weight of your sin, you feel the shame and guilt of past regrets, ruined relationship, a life lived apart from Christ. Are you still wondering if it's too late? Are you beyond the grace of God? Can your sin still be forgiven? As an ambassador of Jesus Christ and one who has been forgiven of a mountain of sin, it is my great privilege to tell you that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. His offer extends to all guilty sinners, to me and even to you. 
And if you have questions about how you can find and own and understand and experience the forgiveness of God and his love in your life, then talk to the person who brought you or talk to one of the leaders here at Placerita. We'd love to explain to you what it means to be a Christian and to know the love of God. Now, if you only watched the movie, the story of Louis Zamperini ends where I finished an introduction. But if you follow this through to his completion, there's more to the story. When he returned home, he was never the same after the war. His every waking moment was fueled by anger and a desire for revenge for his former captors. captors. His dreams were filled with memories of his time as a prisoner. One night in particular, he woke from a nightmare to find himself on top of his wife with his hands wrapped around her neck, choking her to death. She was done. And she pled with him to go to that crusade that was happening down the street in Los Angeles. And so he walked in later that week to a Billy Graham crusade. And in 1949, at the age of 32, he found forgiveness for his sins and salvation in Jesus Christ. The transformation in his life was radical. The drinking, the nightmare stopped almost immediately. But his seething anger and the desire to avenge the wrongs done to him were as strong as ever. He had been so badly mistreated that he had vowed he would never forgive. But slowly, over time, God changed his heart and he forgave those men for what they had done to him. The following year, Louis flew to Tokyo to visit a prison where many of his former captors were imprisoned for their war crimes. He sat with them, telling them that God had forgiven his sins, the crimes he had committed against God, how all of it had been removed through the saving work of Jesus Christ, who gave his life so that all could be forgiven. (coughs) Excuse me. He went on to tell these men, the same men who for over two years had tortured him without mercy, that because God had forgiven him, he was now seeking to forgive them. As a result, many of those men gave their lives to Christ. What a testimony of the grace of God. Louis Zamperini loved his enemies, forgave them, and sought to win them with the gospel. May we go and do likewise, because my friends, forgiveness is always right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving and forgiving unworthy sinners like those of us in this room. We recognize that we have no claim to your grace and that there's nothing we can do to earn your favor. But because of your great love for us, you saved us. You offered yourself for us and So even now, we want to lift up our hearts, recognizing and saying thank you for that work you've done in us. I pray, Lord, that you would help each person here that's struggling with relational turmoil. Would you change our hearts? Would you open us to forgiveness? Would you remind us of what you've done in our lives and help us even to take steps towards reconciliation and restoration? We love you. We pray even now as we sing that you would hear the words of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.